Well, you can open up your copy of God's Word to Psalm 22. I remember last summer, as I was preaching through the Psalms, finished Psalm 21, and on Monday, I began to, to work on Psalm 22. Mondays, I typically work through uh, the Hebrew. Tuesdays, I will, will look at the, the passage and make observations and try to wrestle with the, the main idea and kind of try to form an outline. And then Wednesday, I'll typically begin to, to read through some commentaries. And so a, a year ago, at this time, as I'm studying through Psalm 22, I finished reading the commentaries on Wednesday, and by Thursday I had come to the conclusion that I needed more time. There was so much here uh, that, that I wouldn't be ready to, to preach uh, a sermon on this passage uh, just with the limited amount of study time that I had. Uh, and so uh, the rafting trip was on Saturday of that week last year, exactly a year ago. Uh, and I was hoping to go on the rafting trip, so I spent all day Friday trying to figure out a, a different message to preach, uh, dipping into a, an older uh, sermon. And on, on Friday afternoon, uh, I, I went home, and I kind of had a headache. By the time I got home, I was feeling worse and worse, and I went, got home and went straight to bed. Ended up, I had COVID. I missed the rafting trip. Uh, somebody else preached on Sunday. Uh, but th- the good news was uh, is I've had a full year to study this passage uh, more in depth. And really, after all of that time, I wish I had even more time. This is one of those passages of Scripture that is just absolutely amazing and profound. Uh, and and it's, it's really easy to, to speed past this psalm. Right? You're really familiar with the next psalm, Psalm 23. Uh, but what you may not be as familiar with this psalm and all that it says. Uh, and re- really, this morning is going to be kind of a unique sermon because I'm, really I'm just inviting, I'm like an excited kid that sees stars outside for the first time. Inviting their parents to rush out like, look, look, look at the sky. And the parents are like, what? <clears throat> we, we've seen this before. But then imagine if that kid begins to say, well, look, at there's this planet and this planet and there's this constellations. This is a little bit of what I want to do this morning is to say, come to this passage that you will probably have already read and say, look at the glory of God on display in this passage. And really, this is a psalm where God is just going to show off, where he's going to shine forth his power, his sovereignty. He's going to describe what Jesus is going to go through. Uh, He's going to use David to describe that. Uh, But he's going to do that a thousand years ahead of when the events are going to take place. And really, looking at this psalm, the most difficult thing about this psalm uh, is is figuring out who the speaker is. If you you look at the the title, it says, According to the Ayelith Hashahar. Uh, the ESV makes that a little bit easier to understand. The, the NASB and the, the LSB, which I'm preaching out of, try to just transliterate the Hebrew. The, the, the ESV says, according to uh, the, the doe of the dawn. Uh, the idea is that there's a reference to a, a deer of the, the morning. Uh, and uh, then it says, a psalm of David. So you say, why are you saying it's difficult to figure out who the speaker is? It says right there in the title that it's a psalm of David. I would agree with that, that David is the author of this psalm. I'm not in any way questioning that, but, 
uh, as he writes this, is he writing this describing his own experience or is he writing this describing the experience of the Messiah? So is the Messiah speaking or is this David? We try to figure this out, kind of zoom out a little bit. We have to get a, a grasp of what God is doing throughout all of history. I know this is big picture stuff. Uh, but, but going back to Genesis 3, God has promised a redeemer. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and went their own way. They gave in to the, the temptation of Satan. They themselves wanted to, to be God rather than submit to God in his world. Uh, and since that point forward, humanity has been under the curse. Uh, and there has been a promise of a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, who would uh, end the curse upon uh, humanity and creation. Later on in uh, in Genesis, we see the a covenant that God makes with Abraham, uh, that, that through Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed. In essence, that promised Redeemer is going to come through the line of Abraham. Later on in uh, the Old Testament, we see that God set aside uh, the descendants of Abraham as a nation. Israel is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Later on in Old Testament, we see that there's a, a specific individual within the nation that God has made a, a covenant promise to. David, promising that, that, in essence, through him there's going to be a king, and that king is going to be the one to, to end the curse and to redeem humanity. He's the, the one that we have been waiting for. And so David is, is operating with an understanding of God has made these promises to him. He understands the significance of what has been said about him and his descendants. And King David is going to be a, what is known as a type in the Bible. He is a character who foreshadows another character. Uh, and he's going to foreshadow the Messiah. He's going to foreshadow Jesus. Uh, we saw this a little bit this morning as we, we walked through First and Second Chronicles. And we, we talked about David being uh, a prophet, a priest, and a king. Uh, and other kings in Israel were not allowed to be all of those. They just had to stick with being a king. Uh, and so David is a type of uh, Jesus who is our prophet, priest, and king. There's times in the, the Psalms, especially, where David is going to, to write about his own experiences, and uh, there's also going to mingle in there experiences that are going to be uh, foreshadowing the Messiah. And uh, we know that the future Messiah is going to be like David. He's going to have some of the same experiences as David, right? Uh, the Messiah is going to be born where? Talk to me. In Bethlehem. Why is he born in Bethlehem? Because that's David's hometown. That is where David is from. Uh, there is connections all throughout. The Messiah is going to come to the throne after suffering, which is exactly what David did. David was anointed to be the next king of Israel while Saul was still king, and there was a long period of running for his life, fleeing, suffering before he became king. Uh, and so that's a foreshadowing of the, the greater David. Uh, and David understood the significance of the covenant that God made with him uh, and that the Messiah would follow in his footsteps. And that's where we see there's times where he writes about himself and times where he writes about uh, the Messiah. If you, if you turn back a couple of pages to Psalm 16, verse 10, David writes, For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol, you will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. And so he, he's 
working through his own experiences, then he, he makes this statement that's going to describe and point to the resurrection of the Messiah. Uh, and in Acts chapter 3 or Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is going to, to cite this Psalm 16, and he's going to say this. Um, he says, Men and brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his body on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither forsaken to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter says when David wrote Psalm 16 and spoke about not seeing corruption, he wasn't speaking about himself because you can, he says, look, we have David's tomb right there. David didn't raise from the dead, but Jesus did. And, and Peter is saying David wrote about the Messiah, and he knew and understood about the resurrection. And if David knew and understood about the resurrection, then he, it, we can safely probably say that he also knew about the death of the Messiah. He's going to say that, that the Messiah is going to come back to life. He's going to know about and understand that the Messiah died. And so as, as we circle back around to, to Psalm 22, again, we, as we ask, who is it that's, that's speaking here? It seems like David is writing exclusively about the, the future experience of the Messiah, about Christ, rather than something about his own life. Because we can't connect this, uh, what is described in Psalm 22, we can't connect it to anything that we know about David. And we know more about David than any other Old Testament saint. There's more written and more details given to us about the life of David than any other person in the Old Testament. And this, none of this fits. The scene that was read earlier is uh, not David being sick, right? What is described in this scene uh, is the execution of somebody, a very public execution. Uh, and it's described in tremendous detail. And uh, there, there's so much evidence, uh, I think, in the Scripture that Jesus is being spoken of here and that he should be seen and understood to be the speaker, even though David is writing a thousand years ahead of time. We see that in, when he was on the cross, Jesus is going to quote uh, verse 1 of this psalm. Now, those are the, the familiar words. This is going to be the, the fourth saying of Jesus on the, the cross. And this is going to be the first saying, thing that he says when darkness covers the land from noon to three. He's on the cross and the wrath of God is poured out upon him in that three hours of darkness. And the first thing he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The apostles point to this psalm and say that it is describing the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jewish leaders who crucified Jesus also understood and believed that Psalm 22 spoke about the Messiah. That's why they quote this psalm mockingly to Jesus while he's on the cross. They know and understand what it's speaking about. A later Jewish tradition, one commentator says that even the synagogue, so far as it recognizes a suffering Messiah, hears him speak here and takes the, the title, the phrase, the hind of the morning, the doe of the, the, the deer of the dawn, they take that as a name of the Shekinah glory and as a symbol of the dawning of redemption. The Jewish sources would say that this is speaking of the Messiah. The ancient church regarded Christ, not David, as the speaker in this psalm. They even condemned somebody, Theodore of Mopsuestia, who expounded it as only pertaining to David. 
Martin Luther says this about this psalm, that this is a kind of gem among the psalms. And it is peculiarly excellent and remarkable. It contains those deep and sublime and heavy sufferings of Christ when agonizing in the midst of the terrors and pangs of divine wrath and death which surpass all human thought and comprehension. I know not whether any psalm throughout the whole book contains matter more weighty or from which the hearts of the godly can truly perceive those sighs and groans inexpressible by man which their Lord and head, Jesus Christ, uttered when conflicting for us in the midst of death and in the midst of the pains and terrors of hell. Wherefore, this psalm ought to be the most highly prized by all who have acquaintance with the temptations of faith and spiritual conflicts. This is an amazing psalm. David writing prophetically about the future experiences of the Messiah, and that's amazing enough. But that's only the first part of the psalm. There's a second part of the psalm. The end of it, David's going to be outlining how the world is going to respond to this Messiah who was forsaken. So I, want to, I want to look at this psalm and really divide it into two, two parts. and two, uh, two parts. The first part being the suffering of the forsaken Messiah. In verses 1 to 21. And then we're going to see the celebration for the risen Messiah in verses 22 to 31. But I want to pause and pray because as I've, I've mentioned to try to, to give you uh, glimpses of, there is so much here. I'm going to be moving fast. So if you come up and say, well, you missed this one phrase, I'm going to say, yes, I did. Because uh, there, there's so much here. But I want, to, I want to give an overview and, again, show forth the glory of God in this passage, but let's go before him and pray and ask for his wisdom and guidance. Sovereign Lord, we, we come to you acknowledging your lordship over all creation, acknowledging that you have sent your son to live and die and rise again on our behalf. And we praise you and thank you for that. We would beg you now to give us wisdom and understanding from your word. Help us to behold all that you have in this passage, all that David wrote for our benefit, for our blessing. And may we echo back to you. May we respond as David wants us to respond, as the Messiah wants us to respond with worship and adoration and celebration that you have raised your son from the dead. Uh, may we go forth and proclaim that afterwards. But Lord, help us to, to dive into your word now and may it Benefit our soul and lead to greater worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to read through the entire psalm again. We're going to go kind of uh, bit by bit. But uh, this first portion describing the suffering of the forsaken Messiah is going to really be divided up into two uh, alternating pieces that, that are going to come uh, back and forth. There's going to be this pattern of lament of, of the Messiah crying out to God and then also the Messiah proclaiming a trust in God. Uh, and those two go together, and we're going to see that over and over again. Uh, and th- the first portion of lament in verses 1 and 2 is really going to describe how the Messiah has been forsaken by God. He says, uh, O Yahweh, sorry, that's the, the wrong... Psalm, chapter 20, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I call by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. And 
The, the emphasis here is the, the Messiah has been completely abandoned and forsaken by God. Uh, and where the, it, the LSB and the NASB says that, that his groaning, uh, that he has been crying out to God there, that it's really kind of an understatement of the, what the Hebrew word means. It's far from my salvation are the words of my roaring or the words of my screaming uh, w- would be a better translation of that. That, that Messiah is, is on the cross, crying out, screaming to God. And he feels like God has not answered him. And this is uh, directly cited in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus connects and quotes this passage. So he feels forsaken by God. Then in verses 6 through 8, he, he describes how he is scorned by men. And verses 6 through 8, he, he speaks about that he is a worm and not a man. And in essence, that is how his opponents are viewing him. That there is no compassion towards him. There, there is no pity. That he is reproached. He is a reproach of men and despised by the people. Verse 7, all who see me mock me and they smack their lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him because he delights in him. So think about this. The, the details of this are so profound that David accurately writes about something that's going to be said a thousand years ahead of time. These are the words that the Messiah is going to be mocked with. Uh, and uh, they're going to be spoken by the people who knew the word of God and in a, a tremendous act of spiritual blindness don't understand the ramifications of their own words. And they are the ones who are killing the Messiah. In verses 12 to, to 18, the Messiah is going to speak about his suffering and being surrounded by enemies. And in these verses, he's going to, to describe his own suffering and he's going to, to look to those who are surrounding and attacking him. He's going to describe his own suffering and he's also going to look to God. And, and he uses poetic language to describe his, his enemies and those who are seeking to, uh, to destroy him and, and are in the very act of destroying him. And he uses the, the picture and portrayal of animals. He's going to illustrate his enemies as being uh, beasts, as being the bulls of Bashan. You're like, why the bulls of Bashan? Well, that's where the, the largest and the fattest cattle in the land were grown. Right? We may have in our modern vernacular that they were the, the longhorns of Texas. But he says, no, these, were, these are the, 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 the biggest, strongest of enemies that are surrounding him. Then he compares them to, to lions and dogs. And he says, evildoers surround him. Then he describes his own suffering. He's poured out like water. All his bones are out of joint. Verse 14, he says, My heart is like wax. It's, it's melting within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Describing his physical experiences. And uh, he says that his hands in feet have been pierced in verse 16 for dogs have surrounded me a band of evildoers has encompassed me they pierced my hands and my feet and this really is the the first allusion to the the suffering of the messiah and this is going to be picked up later on and really well known in isaiah 53 and zechariah 12 
Uh, but David is the one who, who introduces us to this theme of the suffering Messiah. And all of these things are the, the details of his crucifixion when uh, he is thirsty, unable to, to speak significantly. He's, he's uh, suffering greatly and tremendously. But he has all of his bones. John 19 records that, that Jesus died before the Roman soldiers went around and expedited death on the cross by breaking the legs uh, of, of those who are being crucified. All of his bones are intact. So all of these things are, are laid out for us. And they said uh, in verse 18, the Messiah says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You think about that. If your enemies have your clothes, what does that mean? You are in a lot of trouble. They have your clothes. You're, you're naked. They have complete power and authority over you. That, this is the, the scene that is being portrayed for us. And there's, there's one little line at the end of verse 15 that is very, very significant. Messiah says, and you lay me in the dust of death. Messiah is speaking to God. Saying all of this suffering that he is going through, he sees and understands that as a sovereign God who is in control. It is a sovereign God who is leading to this suffering. That's echoed elsewhere in Scripture as well. Again, to, to quote the Apostle Peter as he preaches on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, speaking about the crucifixion of the Messiah, he says that he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. Isaiah 53 is going to say that Yahweh was pleased to crush him and put him to grief. It is ultimately the Lord who put Jesus on the cross. And so we see that these three patterns and three cycles of, of lament. But in between those three laments, we, we have praise. Notice after each of those laments, there's a, there's a little phrase. It's either, but you or yet you. Verse 3, after lamenting, God, why are you not answering me? He says, yet you are holy enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you rescued them. And to you they cried and were granted escape. In you they trusted and they were not disappointed. So the Messiah laments and cries out to God, why aren't you hearing me? And yet he says, yet you are holy. In this instance, I think the implication is, God, you will answer me. You, you are altogether different and distinct. Other peoples and other cry out to other gods and those other gods don't answer because they're not real. But you are distinct. You will answer my cry. And David, or the, the Messiah, gets hope by looking at God's history of faithfulness. He says, you are enthroned upon the praise of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. So he looks to God's history of faithfulness in verses 3 through 5. In verses 9, 10, and 11, the next pattern, he says, yet you, in verse 9, Yet you are he who brought me out of the womb, and you made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth, and you have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for distress is near, for there is none to help. He looks back upon his own experience of God caring for him and providing for him every day of his life. God has been faithful in history, and God has been faithful to him. 
Then there's, there's a final plea in verses 19 to 21. Again, we see that beginning phrase, but you, O Yahweh, be not far off. And then he lists off uh, four really quick petitions and four really quick prayers. They're imperative commands in the Hebrew. God, do this for me. And he again illustrates and points to four things that he wants to be saved from. He wants to be delivered from the sword. He wants to be uh, delivered from the power or the hand of the dog. To save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. King James Version has uh, uh, the idea of a, a unicorn. They translate that as unicorn there. We're not sure exactly of the animal, but it's a, it's a wild beast with horns. This is, this is profound in terms of this, this level of detail and this pattern of lament and trust by the Messiah. And over the course of my ministry, I've had lots of conversations evangelistically with atheists. You ever talk to atheists? They, they love to, to question the Bible, the validity of it. They'll, they'll pick certain things about, oh, well, this isn't true, or this isn't true. Do you know what they generally try to avoid? Passages like this, where you can demonstrate God-fulfilling prophecy a thousand years ahead of time. Sometimes they'll say, oh, well, that's prophecy after the fact. That somehow that was written later on. It's like, no, 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 we have copies of this that, that verify all of this was written out before the life of Christ. It is, it is really impossible to deny the power of what we see before us. That the, fulfilled, the fulfillment of prophecy is one of the greatest arguments and greatest demonstrations that God's word is true. It would have been amazing and impossible if David had only predicted that the Messiah was going to be executed, right? To, to, to get that right a thousand years ahead of time. Anybody want to predict here how one of your descendants will die a thousand years from now? Anyone want to take a shot? We can put it in a bottle and bury it. Like, it would be amazing if you just like, well, this, they're going to die this way. If you got that right, that would be like, that's amazing. But David does more than just prophesy that one of his descendants, the Messiah, is going to be executed. And he gives all of these minute details. In the Old Testament, there are 60 major prophecies that describe who the Messiah is going to be, where he's going to be born, what family he's going to be born into, what he's going to do, how he's going to die, all of these things. The odds of eight of those 60 prophecies being fulfilled, so 13%, the odds of 13% of those prophecies being fulfilled by any one individual is one in 100 quadrillion, or one to the or 10 to the 17th power. So to, to illustrate this, and I've used this illustration before, but you could take uh, silver dollars and cover the state of Texas two feet deep uh, in all of that, and then I could just say, hey, go find that one silver dollar. Right? Good luck with that, right? That, that, that's what we're talking about here. This is the odds of... Jesus fulfilling these prophecies. And that's, those are the odds for just eight of the 60 prophecies. But what, what's Jesus' batting average when it comes to those prophecies about the Messiah? A lot higher than 13%. It's actually 100%. He gets every one of those prophecies fulfilled. Nobody else even comes close. It's, it's a statistical impossibility. And so Jesus fulfilling every one of these prophecies... It is a, a loud 
bullhorn. It's, it's a giant neon sign proclaiming who he is. This, this is a fulfillment of God's plan that he ordained from before the foundation of the world. That Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the one that we are to put our hope in. And if you want to argue against the Bible, you have to reckon with Psalm 22. How do you understand this, this level of detail, a thousand years before Jesus? But this portion of Psalm 22 is a lot more than just a prophecy about Christ's future suffering and execution. It also lays before us a pattern uh, for our own suffering. That's what we see over and over again in the early portion of the Psalms. We see uh, David suffering, continually running for his life, continually crying out to God. And he is our model of what it looks like to suffer well in this life. Uh, And the same is going to be true about Jesus, the ultimate example of what it looks like to suffer well. And that pattern of lament, it's okay to lament. It's okay to cry out to God in the midst of suffering. Uh, But sometimes we just stick only with the lament. It's a lot easier to lament than to take hold of your thoughts and emotions and do what the Messiah does here, what David does over and over again in the Psalms. They don't just lament. What do they do after that? They turn and say, I'm going to trust in God. And they recount God's history of faithfulness. Again, the Messiah looks to history. He looks to his own experiences. And we can do the same. Where can we look at God's history of faithfulness? In his word that we all have. Where can you look for God's history of faithfulness in your own life? Just, just begin to recount how God has provided for you, answered prayers, responded to you when you have cried out to him. So we see this wonderful example of what it looks like to suffer well. This is the example that we need to follow of the suffering Messiah who prayed, uh, cried out to God, and the Messiah's prayer was answered. God heard his prayer and answered. And and that last statement in verse 21 is significant. That's the hinge point of this entire psalm, where after four big cries out to God, the the Hebrew imperatives, the commands, God, save me from these beasts. That last phrase in verse 21 says what? You have answered me. Not you will answer me. But he says, you have answered me. Speaking in, in the, the past tense, and we're not given all of the details of how has God answered. Well, we know because we know that the story of the cross. That God the Father answers God the Son and hears his prayer, but the Messiah dies and he's resurrected. That's the whole point of Psalm 1610 that we looked at. And from this point forward in this psalm, there is no hint of lament. There's no hint of sorrow. The only emotion that we see from this point forward in this psalm uh, is joyful, worshipful celebration. It's just one big party after God answers the Messiah's prayer. Look at this next portion of the, of the psalm, the, the second part, verses 22 to 31, the, the celebration for the risen Messiah. This, this is so profound it goes beyond just talking about the cross to how is the world going to respond to the risen savior verses 22 to 26 uh, we're going to see the forsaken king the one who was abandoned by god he's going to be the one who's going to go and he's the speaker in verses 22 to to 26 
Verse 22 says, I will surely recount your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Hebrews 2 verse 12 says that speaker is Jesus. That Jesus is the one who goes and announces what God has done in raising him from the dead. And Jesus does exactly that. We'll see that later on in John's gospel as we continue our way through. Jesus appears to his disciples and he says, hey, I'm here, guys. That was where the slow to believe Thomas had previously said, I'll never believe. And then Jesus appears and says, I'll believe. I don't have to put my hands upon the wounds. He says, you are my Lord and my God. But the risen Messiah is coming and he is announcing to his brothers that they should praise God. Verse 23, for you, you who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you seed of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you seed of Israel, for he has not despised and he has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. And that's a little bit of an understatement, right? Because it's not only was Jesus not afflicted, and that's mentioned here because what was the accusation of those who were mocking him? He said, you've been abandoned by God. God hates you. That's why you're there on the cross. But Jesus says, no, no. I was not afflicted. I was not uh, hated and despised by God. But indeed, he was blessed. There's a, there's a severe understatement here saying that he's not afflicted. But he cried to God for help and God heard Verse 25 says, Of you is my praise in the great assembly, and I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied, and those who seek will praise Yahweh. May your heart live forever. And the idea here is uh, that in, in the Old Testament, when somebody would uh, fulfill a vow, or when there was an answer to a prayer that you had lifted up to God, that you would go to the tabernacle, you would go to the temple, and you would offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It known as a peace offering. But a peace offering wasn't just for you. It was the idea of a community meal, that you would go with your friends, with your family, and you would go rejoice in the temple because God has answered your prayer. And here we have the Messiah rejoicing with people, celebrating that he has been risen from the dead. And he has been raised. And those who will come and eat with him and will be the poor, the afflicted, they will eat and be satisfied. And those who seek him will praise Yahweh. And we see that the Messiah is the one who will bring others into fellowship and worship with God. And then verses 27 to 31 is going to, to describe even something bigger and something greater because we're going to see uh, that the Messiah, his resurrection from the dead, as it is announced that all of the nations are going to come into relationship and fellowship and worship of the one true God. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. All the families of the nations will worship before him. Families of the nations pointing back to God's covenant promises to Abraham. says, through you, Abram. All of the families of the world will be blessed. Verse 28, For the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he rules over the nations, and all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship, and all those who go down to the dust will bow before him. The idea there is that the prosperous ones is literally the, the fat ones uh, in, in the Hebrew. Like, Why doesn't the English translation say that? Well, uh, but it, the idea is the living and the dead, those who are alive and prosperous and those who are going down to the dust. Everybody 
is going to come and worship the Messiah. Everyone's going to come and worship Yahweh through the Messiah. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Verse 30, their seed will serve him and it will be recounted about the Lord to the coming generation. It will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has done it. Through everything that has been predicted here. Yahweh's message of deliverance when it is told among the peoples of the world that that God has raised the king that he has forsaken, that the king who died lives again. When that is announced among the peoples of the world, the expectation is worship and adoration and all of the peoples of the world turning in worship to God. This extends a lot further beyond David. Right? David is not speaking of himself here. This worldwide response is so tremendous. And this is, again, this is the big picture of redemptive history. This is what God is doing throughout all of the ages, and it's predicted here by David. Verse 31 has a, just a wonderful summary of what is being proclaimed to a people who are not yet born. Well, what's that message? That he has done it. What a message that Christ has suffered and died for sinners. That he is now risen and ascended to be with God the Father. This is the message of the gospel, the message of Christianity. And, and it echoes, what was Jesus' final statement on the cross? It is finished. He has done it. You and I are here and we are now commanded over and over again in the Psalms to look to this son, this king. We're to look to him and pay homage to him. That's Psalm 2. We're to look to him in faith. We're to believe that message that he has done it. And that is the heart of Christianity. Every other religion is about you doing stuff. You try harder. You jump on that hamster wheel and you try to earn your way to heaven. But the message of Christianity, the message of the scriptures is, no, Christ has accomplished it already. It is finished. He has done it. And now look to him and trust in him. Forsake all of your own wisdom. Forsake all of your own works. And look and behold, this is what God has done through his son. Just an an amazing, amazing passage. I know... I know this was a lot to take in. I know this is uh, so much minutia. But it's of the utmost importance. And it's important to, to grasp what is being proclaimed and when it is being proclaimed. In this psalm, we see the suffering of the forsaken Messiah. We see the, the celebration of the risen Messiah. We see that the unfolding of human history and how God has planned from before the foundation of the world that he's going to save a people through his son going to the cross. His son living and dying and rising again is how we are going to be cleansed of our sins. How we are going to be forgiven and brought into relationship with God the Father. That has always been the plan. And it always will be the plan. But in order for 
Jesus to be the rescuer, in order for him to be the, the savior and the redeemer, he had to die. He had to be forsaken. He had to experience the wrath of God to pay the penalty for our sins. That was a must. It was a non-negotiable. Without the cross, there is no forgiveness and no reconciliation. Back in 1917, Cecil B. DeMille produced a, a movie called Joan the Woman. It was a, a very big, dramatic production. And he, he brought the film to New York to be approved by the, uh, the, the censors at that time. And after the screening, there was a, a clergyman in there among the, the censors, and they would evaluate whether something should be taken out of the movie. And at the, the end of the, the movie, the, the clergyman had no issues with anything that was said or done. But there was a, another woman who was on the censor board who, who disagreed, and she said there was, there was one thing that had to be deleted from the movie. And she said, it's the line where Joan says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the producer, Cecil B. DeMille, says, are you familiar with the, the, the background to that saying? Do you know where that line was first spoken? And, and the woman ignored the question. And to her, it made no difference where the, the line was first spoken. But she went on to explain the reason for her conviction. She says, it means that God would forsake someone. And it has to come out. That, that has to be taken out of the movie. I'm really, really glad that that has not been taken out of the Bible. Christ had to go to the cross in fulfillment of prophecy, but also for our salvation. Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we would never have to say that? He was forsaken so that we would never experience that. That's what had to happen. It could not be removed. Our salvation is not possible apart from that. And we see the glorious plan of God unfolding here and what must take place. And if we have looked to him in faith and we can rejoice in that this has always been God's plan, we can rejoice in the salvation that we have because Jesus went to the cross. We can also be faithful proclaimers. We can go forth and, and live out what is described in the second portion of this song, right? We can go and announce to the world that the plan of God is being fulfilled and it's been demonstrated in the crucifixion and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus. And if you look to Him, you can be made new. You can be brought near to God. This is the hope that is laid out for us here in Psalm 22. And there's going to be even more, more to come in terms of how Psalm 22 connects with Psalm 23 and 24. All of these have been laid out in a specific order to show forth the great and amazing plan of God. But I hope this morning that you have seen the cross for all that it is and all that Jesus has intended for it to be, all that God the Father has intended for it to be. This is one of those sermons you're not necessarily going to go away with, well, I've got to go do this, this, and this. But this is a time where we just get to to sit and to behold the cross of Jesus and to reflect upon it. We're going to sing one last song as after I pray, but I hope that you would go from here and continue to think about and talk about and reflect upon this song. Don't just let it speed past you anymore. 
But think about the cross of Christ, what it has accomplished in your life and in the world at large. Let's pray one more time.